All right. Well, good morning. We're glad you've come to worship with us in this place today. We, we worship uh, the true and living God. He is on his throne and there's nothing he cannot do. And so whatever question or problem or thing that you bring into this place today, know that he is there and he is able. There's three different things we need to do in the remainder of our time together. Number one, uh, I'll do most of this one. That's the preaching. Got a little sermon to preach. Uh, we're, this is the last Sunday of the month, so we do a little bit of a celebration. Normally, we do uh, just birthdays and anniversaries. We're going to do that. But last month, we started with our uh, big vision celebration, so you can see our big vision board. It's, it's like Plinko on the Price is Right, you know, so you get to play along with that. So I want you to be thinking about it. If you have not, be thinking about uh, something that you have seen or experienced that you want to celebrate that goes along with the big vision that is building the kingdom, investing personally, gospel conversations, and glory seeking. Uh, that is uh, ways that we have grown in understanding and seeing God at work. And so we'll do that. And then we are going to close with a sending prayer for a group of, of our folks that are going on a mission trip. And so we'll uh, do those things. So I'll try to use my time appropriately meaning I'm going to try to shorten it up just a little bit today. Amen? Okay, all right. You know, our country today is in the midst of a power struggle, a political struggle, and it seems that there's at least two vastly different competing visions of what is right, what is wrong, where the country needs to go, and all of that. And I have to say, I don't think this is anything new. In some ways, what we see uh, playing out in our country parallels maybe the biblical drama, the idea that um, God created the world and that he had standards, he has standards, that he has a vision for how people would live for the glory of God to reflect as his stewards uh, his very nature and in his righteousness and his holiness. And yet we see uh, trouble in creation. We see a rebellion. We see those who would seek to uh, go after a different vision. And so we see this kind of thing played out, and folks, this will be until the Lord comes again. There will be a battle, if you will. There will be a war going on. And so the, the question, I guess, for many people today, most of us have our minds made up in the political realm, right? But who's going to win this struggle? And then I hope that you understand that the victory has already been won, that God will win the victory. And so we want to be on the right side. We want to be on the winning side. Today in our journey with Jesus and Mark's gospel, we're going to really wrap up the first major section um, of, of Mark, which focuses primarily on the public display of Jesus' authority. So the way that I understand a pretty simple outline for the gospel of Mark, there are three pieces. One is the public display of the authority and the power of Jesus. Secondly, then, is the private instruction that Jesus gives specifically to those who are his followers and his disciples. And then thirdly, in the last part of the Gospel of Mark, is the passion narrative. That is the death of Christ and the resurrection. So those are the three big moves, if you will, in Mark's Gospel. We've been focusing on this first one in this first month this summer, which is the public pronouncement of Jesus and the display of his power and his authority. So we wrap that up and we'll move into the next section coming into next week. You know, there are things that happen in our world that make us feel like maybe God is absent. 
or God is not involved in the world. I read a headline this week. I didn't read the story, but it just said that, that the belief that there is a God is precipitously declining in America. And maybe part of that is because there's people looking around and they're just not convinced about things. And, and they look around and they go, I just don't see how there could be a God. And folks, listen, I understand. There are those things that go on. You go, man, I just don't, I just don't see why God is not doing something about this. But you know what? Jesus' presence in the world, his coming to the world is proof positive. And we know when we see the life and the ministry of Jesus that God is involved in the world and that he's changing things. He is doing things. And I think that the Gospel of Mark shows us this same contrast. Just before we get into today's sermon text in Mark chapter 6, we actually hear or read of the story of John the Baptist, that's Jesus' cousin, who was the forerunner to Jesus. We read about him being beheaded by King Herod. John the Baptist was this great preacher and righteous man who called people to repentance, and there was a great revival, if you will, under his preaching. And then all of a sudden, at the whim of a scorned woman, Herod decides to behead this man. And I wonder about all of those disciples of John, those who loved John, those who heard his preaching, had been baptized at the hands of John. I suspect they're thinking, God, where are you? The Baptist has just been beheaded. And so there is that, and then we come right into Mark chapter 6, and we see where God is. He is right there in the person of Jesus. We're going to look at the story today of Jesus feeding of the 5,000 plus. This great miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. I actually had prepared to preach on something else, and I felt like I needed, just last night, needed to switch over to this. It's interesting, there are not that many of Jesus' miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels, but this one is. This made a profound impact on the disciples as they look back and they're recalling the life and ministry of Jesus. And we said that, the Mark's, that Mark's Gospel most likely is the recounting of the life and ministry of Jesus according to the Apostle Peter. And I think that we see in all of the Gospels that this was a big deal, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 plus. So let's jump right in as we see the compassion of Jesus towards the crowd. Mark chapter 6, we'll read verses 32 through 34. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, Jesus and his disciples were trying to get away from the crowds. They're going away, they're spiritually drained, they're going for a rest, and they're trying to get away, but the people watch them going out on the boat, and so they're going, we know where they're going, they're going to the next port, and so they follow after, and this massive crowd comes and meets Jesus and his disciples just at a moment when they're trying to get a little bit of spiritual rest, and this big crowd boils up, and Jesus, it says, looks at them with compassion. I would look at them with aggravation. I've already taken care of you folks. I need a siesta. I need a rest. <clears throat> but we see that Jesus cares about the spiritual concerns of people. He sees them and it says like they are like sheep without a shepherd. He's looking. He says, man, these people don't know which way is right and wrong. No one has taught them the way of truth. They don't know what way to turn. And folks, we have a lot of folks like that in our country today. 
They're just following along with others their age or following along with the media or whatever. And I think that Jesus would look at them like sheep without a shepherd. God is concerned with compassion in the person of Jesus at people's spiritual condition, first of all. You know, over and over we see Jesus moved with compassion at the lostness, the waywardness of people. That they are separated from God and they don't know which way to turn. They don't know which end is up, spiritually speaking. And he has compassion. You know, a friend of mine challenged me about this the other day. We were just talking about the state of the world and all of that. And uh, he said, you know, basically I wonder if we as Christians have lost sight of this. This idea of being compassionate towards those who are utterly lost and wayward, who have totally different ideas than we have as Christians. And I have to confess, you know, as I've watched some of the protests erupting this week and some of the parades going on and all of this, I was watching this on the news and how I felt was angered and at times frustrated and disgusted by certain things that I was seeing and, and, and signs that were being held up. And I just go, ah, oh, man, these people. And I think that this was just a little bit of a gut check for me asking, have I lost the missionary zeal, the compassion towards the loss that Jesus has. And he looks at these people with compassion. Not just their spiritual needs, but that first of all, because Jesus is going to go, as he looks at them like sheep without a shepherd, it says he goes and he speaks to them. He teaches them. He's telling them probably the same thing he's been telling them all along, the way of the kingdom of God and the way that you must enter in through the narrow road. He's providing them the way of salvation and forgiveness and being made right with God. Folks, that's our greatest need. That is our greatest need. For if we persist in separation from God and sin and going our own way, the Bible teaches that we will suffer eternally. A future separated from God. And that suffering is a horrible thing for those who don't know God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is concerned about the eternal suffering of people. But not only that, he's moved with compassion about their temporal needs. That is, their hunger. This crowd is with him all day long, you know, and they've been rushing around. And he looks out at these people and he's moved with compassion by the fact that they haven't had anything to eat. Jesus is concerned about their spiritual, eternal needs, and also their physical or temporal needs, caring for their needs. You know, as Christians, I think we are to be like Jesus in that way. Hey, listen, if you care about someone, you should care about the whole person. You should care about their physical or temporal needs as well as their eternal needs, their spiritual needs. It's holistic care. That is the kind of care that we see operative in Jesus' life in his ministry. And the disciples, you know what they want to do? They said, man, these people are hungry. They haven't had anything to eat. Tell them to get out of here. Jesus, adjourn this meeting and tell them to go get something to eat. They want to send them away. And now we're going to see the insufficiency of the disciples' plan and their resources in verses 35 through 38. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, that's Jesus, answers them and says, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. 
And when they found out, they said five and two fish. The insufficiency of the disciples' resources. We can't do anything about this. Jesus, there's thousands of people. Send them away. And he says, no, you give them something to eat. Jesus gives them a challenge. Listen to this, folks, that they cannot meet on their own. They do not have the resources to feed these people, I don't think. They ask the question about money. Jesus, would you have us go and spend 200 denarii to feed these people? Maybe they had 200 denarii. I don't know. I don't know if there was an Aldi or a Walmart right there close where they could have got the supplies that they needed. You know, you figure this out. And I was thinking about, well, denarii, they say, is about a day's wage. So about 200 days pay. So if you think about that, we're talking about the majority of the year, more than half of the year's wage to feed these people. So I get to thinking about this. This is a feeding of the 5,000 men, plus there were others. So let's just use the number 5,000 because that's the number we have. If you fed them Taco Bell, which is one of the cheapest places that you could eat around, is it, am I right? When I only have a few dollars in the wallet for lunch, it's Taco Bell. Let's say five bucks. Can you get a meal at Taco Bell for five bucks? Huh? Okay, so 550, I mean, you know, the only kind of lunch you're going to get that's fulfilling at all. So 5,000 people times five bucks. How much are we talking about? 25,000 bucks. And that's if you're drinking water. Right? All right. So if you have the online app, apparently you can save some money. They didn't have this, but I'm just thinking about the amount of resources it would take if you had the money and if you could get it bought. And the disciples are kind of like, Jesus, would you have us to do this thing? It's really not doable. It doesn't seem like something we should even worry ourselves with. And I think that Jesus issues this challenge. Number one, he knows what he's going to do. But first of all, they need to see what they can't do. The disciples have to see what they cannot do on their own. Their resources and abilities in the flesh are insufficient to meet the need. I think that we as Christians... Sometimes we get in a safe zone. We get in the place where we're comfortable, and so we only operate within the bounds of what we know we can do. We've already got that money in the bank. This is easy. This is safe. This is a comfort zone. And I wonder, is that where God would have us to stay? I will tell you, this, this story, the feeding of the 5,000, Y'all know this, right? You've heard this story before. You've read it. And and, and in fact, I just kind of passed it over. I'm like, we all know this story. But I got to thinking about how it's been pivotal in my life at various points where it seems like this very story was something that God used in my life to challenge me to move ahead into something he was calling me to do. But honestly, I felt totally insufficient to do. The first one was the first church I ever pastored. I was going in view of a call. I'd been a youth pastor for several years. and, And I was going in view of a call. And I felt totally unworthy and insufficient. It's a fairly large church. They had had a guy who had a, you know, he was a, he was a professor of biblical history. And I, actually, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention now. He had been their pastor. Had a guy that had been a career missionary in Africa. This guy was a giant of the faith. Was their last pastor. And I'm like, it's me. And this is what I preached about when I went. And God used it probably more in my life than in theirs. But to say, I can do what you can't do. I can do it, but you can't do it on your own. I think we play it safe. 
There was another point that uh, a church I was in, we were, we were branching out to try to do something that was a little bit weird, a little bit unheard of. It, it was going to be challenging, and I knew people were going to kind of be struggling to, to see it. But first of all, I had to be convinced that this was what God had for us. And I'll never forget sitting in my car. I may have told you all this. Hopefully you've forgotten it. Uh, sitting in my tr- car my truck, and I'm going, Lord, I really think this is what we're supposed to do, but I d- how do I do it? And I said, Lord, would you give me a word? I don't normally recommend that you just kind of flip the Bible open and bing. But anyway, I was like, Lord, give me a word in this thing. And I remember my little blue Bible I kept in the truck. And I came to John chapter 6, the alternate or one of the parallel uh, accounts of this story. And I just remember God used that to say, look, look what I did. And I'm going, God, where do I start? And here's what I felt like the Lord said to me in my heart in his word that day. Start with what you got. We had a little bit, but it was going to take a lot. Start with what you got. And he says to the disciples, hey, look around and see what you got. How much, how much food do you have here? And they come back, they're like, five loaves and two fishes. All right, I can do something with that. And the Lord challenged me. And I'll tell you, I saw God do some things that were amazing in terms of resources as we just stepped out in faith and didn't worry about how it was all going to pan out, it just panned out. And I will say, God has challenged me using this story. But we try to stay in our little comfortable box. And if we can't see how we can do it on our own right here and now, so often we just go, "I, I can't go there. And Jesus brings them to this point of saying, here's over 5,000 people, you feed them, we can't do it, they say. He says, what do you got? I said, we got this. Give it to me. The disciples' insufficient resources. And I'll tell you, today, you and I, in and of ourselves, of our own strength, we are insufficient to meet the world's greatest needs, really to do anything. The Bible says without Christ, apart from him, we can do nothing. And so as a church, as Christians, we should be pretty cognizant of that as we think about ministry going man I I want to see the Lord do great things but we also need to realize that he's not depending on our resources he's got it covered he's asking us so often to just step out in faith and let him do something let him shine let him provide what is needed today and I'll say to you today that you cannot provide for your greatest need, which is your eternal salvation. You do not have the resources, nor do I. We do not have the resources to atone for our sins, to make right everything we have messed up and made wrong by our willing rebellion against God, our trespasses and sins. We can't do it. We can't do it, but he can. He can. We, in and of ourselves, are insufficient. But when we are connected by faith to the Lord of glory, watch out. He will do great things where faith is operative in our lives. Let's move to the next thing, the miraculous feeding of over 5,000 in verses 39 through 44. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. I love that little detail. There's green grass there. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them and he divided up the two fish among them all. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Look at that. Jesus tells them, sit down in groups of 50 and, and at 100, gets them a little bit organized. And he looks up towards heaven and he blesses those five loaves and two fish. And he begins to pass them out through the disciples. Go pass this out. And I can't imagine how the disciples felt like, okay, I don't get it, but here you go. Here's a group of 50 that just ate from five loaves and two fish. And, and then they come back and they go, oh, there's more. And they go to the next group and the next group and the next group. Jesus does it. The disciples are part of it. And then it says there are 12 baskets left over. I'll be honest, I'm not sure I'm picking, over, picking up leftover fish. After people have eaten it, you know, but, but they go and he's, you know, everyone has eaten until they are satisfied, they are stuffed. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It didn't cost them anything. And the disciples go and it says they gather up 12 baskets, one basket for every disciple. And I'll tell you, this I think is meant to be this memorable thing. And God will do this in our lives too when we're trusting in him and obedient to step out and do these things. There will be something that we carry and see and experience that's just like, this is amazing. Five loaves, two fish, and here is this basket they carry back to the master. One basket, each of the disciples, who were insufficient in and of themselves to do anything, and they see Jesus do this great miracle. Hey, listen, folks, this is a miracle. This is not ma magical and not sleight of hand. This is not trick. It's not uh, literary exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. It's not any of that. We are meant to understand this plain and simple. Jesus Christ did a feeding miracle. He suspended, if you will, the laws of nature, nature and the norms of time and space and matter. And he does a miracle. He does a miracle. I love what one writer says. He says, you know... This should be shocking to you. This should be sh shocking. This is not a normal. It's a miracle. These disciples, a third of them were fishermen. They understood about how many people a fish could feed. And then once you ate it, it's over, and we get to catch more fish and sell you more fish. They understood. This normally doesn't happen. These are sensible people. And yet they write this down and expect us to believe it. Why did they do that? Because they saw it. They saw Jesus do something that just physically, scientifically, whatever you want to say, normally does not happen. They saw these people eat from the hands of Jesus, breaking five loaves and two fish. This doesn't happen every day. But every one of the gospel writers puts it down. Because there's something that we need to understand. Now, you would think that the disciples were, I mean, like slam dunk, case closed. I'm never doubting Jesus again. I get it now. And yet, if you go to the end of Mark chapter 6, well, not to the very end. It says right after this, and we're not going to read it, there's another miracle that Jesus does right on the heels of this. Namely, he walks on the water out to the disciples who are struggling at the oars, rowing in a sea that is storm-tossed. And he walks out on the water to them and scares them to death. And one of the reasons apparently Jesus had to do this was because Mark 6, verse 52 says, 
for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. <laughs> you would think if you're the guy carrying the, bas- the food out and carrying the baskets back that you get it. You get everything about Jesus. He's a miracle worker. He is a way maker and all of that. And, 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 but they didn't get it. There was something they didn't get. And, and we scratch our heads at this just a little bit. What's clear is it says their hearts were hard. They did not gain the insight that Jesus wanted them to get in the midst of this miracle. You see, Jesus, in the midst of doing these things and acts of compassion and teaching others, he is teaching his disciples who will carry on the ministry after him. But their hearts were hard. There were some things they missed. And so I asked the question to you today, what do you think we're supposed to get out of this miracle? What were they supposed to get? What was supposed to be the result of them being a part of Jesus feeding the 5,000 plus? Well, as I said, the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark seem to be really focusing in on the fact that Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and in earth. He's exercising a kind of power and authority, really, that no one else has. He's revealing his identity. You see, Matthew chapter 14, again, another parallel of this story, says clearly, after the loaves and fishes, and after the walking on the water, then they understand, listen to this, that Jesus is God's Son. He is the Son of God. He is divine. It didn't sink in for some reason at the 5,000. Their hearts were hard. Now, now listen. You would think about these guys are seeing and they're hearing all of this, and you'd think their hearts would be softened to Jesus and they would totally get it. But the fact is, as human beings, there's a big crust and stone encapsulation around our hearts. And it just takes time. I wonder how many people have sat through the telling of this story, read it in the Bible. Maybe you grew up listening to all of this. You've heard it over and over again. And you know the story, but do you get it? Do you get what the Bible is clearly asking us to believe? And do you believe it? Namely, that Jesus has come in the power of God into this world to exercise the authority of God and to bring salvation and usher in his kingdom. Do you believe it? Do you get it? Do you understand that Jesus is no ordinary human being? He's one of a kind. He is the only begotten son of God on whom we are to believe. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. You're not here today to become a follower of Sean Milligan. Lord, I hope not. We're looking to Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. And he came and attested to his identity by these miracles which are recorded for us by some of those who were eyewitnesses to these accounts. And I'll tell you, they were just as stunned as we are. But we're asked, I think, to believe and understand the divine nature of Jesus. And in fact, I think next week we'll be looking at that, about Peter finally getting it and giving his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But I think there's something else. I think that idea of the focus on their hard hearts, we were meant to understand this is a personal thing. This is not just theology in a book. Their hearts. See, you have your heart and I have mine. 
And I need to worry about my heart and you need to worry about yours. What's the condition of your heart today? What's filling up your heart? Is it pride, self-reliance? Maybe that's some of where the disciples were. They just couldn't move beyond the things that they could do. Pride, self-reliance, self-exalting, things like that. Maybe your heart today is full of something else. Maybe it's full of fear and anxiety. I suspect there was probably a group of those disciples who were just, what are you asking us to do, Jesus? I can't believe you would ask us. You're going to make fools of us. If you have us go out and tell these people to sit down, we're going to feed them. You're going to make a fool of us. Fear and anxiety. And he asked every one of these disciples, trust me, follow me, obey me. Watch me at work. There are a lot of fearful things going on in our world today. And some of them may just be things that only are happening in your home or your life or your world. But we're all facing these things. We're all facing uh, uncertainty. Anxiety is at record levels. Fear. Mistrust. Maybe today you've brought into this place a heart that is just absolutely pulsing with stress and concerns. I'll tell you, God does not want you to leave this place with those concerns. He wants you to trust Him. You know what faith is? Faith is a steady, sure confidence. It's, it's confidence. It's certainty. Trust in Jesus. Do you have confidence in Jesus? Now, if I were to ask you, you know, raise your hand if you got confidence in Jesus today. I'm sure, you know, there'd be always the people that, before they ever heard the question, they raise their hand, right? And, and there would be those, and there would be some that were going, yeah, I got, I, got, I got confidence in Jesus. Well, what are you trusting him for? And if we pressed a little bit, you'd probably say, well, I'm trusting him to save me, to take me to eternity, to heaven, if you will. I've, I've trusted Jesus to, to forgive me of my sins, to make me right with God. All right, that's, that's great. Most important thing you can ever do is trust him there. What else are you trusting Jesus for? This same Jesus who has power over the winds and the waves and the seas and the loaves and the fish. This same Jesus who says to us and teaches us, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, and yet they're arrayed Better than Solomon in all of his splendor. In other words, they are beautiful and God has clothed them with splendor. Consider the little birds. How God feeds the little birds. The little sparrows. Are you not worth much more than them? So why do you worry about what you're going to eat? About your clothing and your raiment and all of those things? Trust God in those things. Trust God. When you're facing something that seems absolutely impossible, it's a mountain and you go, I can't handle that. You, that may be the very point he wants you to understand. But he can. As you face your mountain, as you face your crowd, as you face your giant, trust Jesus in it. He does not want you to think that you can do it on your own. There are things you can do 
you know, you're fairly self-sufficient, right? You've got a paycheck and all that. What if all of that just goes away? Just in one moment, you're like Job. It just comes crashing down. What do you trust in then? If you can trust Jesus to save you for all of eternity, don't you think you can trust him today? Don't you think you can trust him to send the rain when he sees fit? Lord, please let it rain on my place. <laughs> right? Don't you think you can trust him with the prognosis, the diagnosis? Don't you think you can trust him with that move, that scary thing that you feel like he's pushing you out into? Can you trust him there? If you can trust him with your eternity, folks, you can trust him with tomorrow. Am I right? Yes, I'm right. He will take care of us, even when maybe it's a prison cell or it's the promise of death like John the Baptist faced. John the Baptist went through a, a moment of despair and he's asking Jesus, I thought you were the one. Hey, 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 uh, tell me, are, are you the one or are you not? Why is he asking that question? Because he's about to lose his life. Jesus says, you're right where you need to be because God can take care of you in this life and every aspect of this life and he can see you into the next. Into your eternal home where there is peace and love and joy forevermore. The Gospel of Mark functions in some ways like an apologetic. Apologia, apologetic means to give an answer for our faith. One of the things that people were asking early Christians, why, do you, uh, why are you sitting around singing and, and talking about and worshiping a guy who was crucified? See, people that were crucified were usually the lowest of the low, the worst sinners, you know, the ones that they wanted publicly humiliated. And so they would ask the question, why do you worship a dude who was crucified? The Gospel of Mark seems to be trying to answer that question, to give an answer why we worship a guy who was crucified. A beautiful answer was found in a little poem that I came across just last night that I think helps us think about why we worship a crucified and risen Savior. Listen to this. His holy fingers formed the bough where grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places he designed. He made the forests whence they sprung, the tree on which his holy body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill upon which it stood. The sun which hid from him its face by his decree was poised in space. The sky which darkened o'er his head by him above the earth was spread. The spear that spilt his precious blood was tempered in the fires of God. The grave in which his form was laid was hewn in rocks his hands had made. The story of the Bible, the story of the gospel of Jesus is that God himself came down in the person of Jesus Christ into the world that he created and had all authority and power over, and yet he came as a humble servant in love to save the world. There was a line in the first song that we sang about love being our weapon. Love is the weapon that Jesus picked up when he came to this world. Totally humble, compassionate servant. And he was crucified on a cross made of wood 
that he had spoken into existence, into the world that he had spoken into existence. And it's a mystery. It's, it's an amazing thing to think about. But that tomb that was made of the rock, that yes, he spoke into existence, yet the little place was owned by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, so it was a borrowed tomb. Jesus' body was put in that tomb. After he died on the cross for your sins and for mine, to help us to see what sin deserves. And help us to see how much he loves us and cares for us. To help us to see the horror of life apart from God. He went to the cross and he died and he went into a tomb. Three days later, he rose. He came out victorious over death and everything that the devil and the world could throw at him. He arose victorious. And his promise is, if you believe in me, you will never die. You will be victorious over the grave. And so I ask you these questions today as we close. Are you trusting in the one who made you and came to this world to rescue you, to save you? Or is your heart hard towards him? Look at me. Look up here. Most important question you'll ever be asked. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? This humble and lowly servant he says, follow me into life. And he restores us and he forgives us of our sins. Are you trusting him for your eternal life? Let me invite you to do that today. Not of works, not anything you can do because you can't do anything to save yourself. Only come as a beggar, humble and lowly, and receive the salvation that he gives. If you've done that, I ask you this question. Are you trusting him for today's challenges? For tomorrow's challenge? Are you willing to cast your cares and anxieties and burdens on him today? That's where you need to put them, on his shoulders. He will care for you in the hardest moments of life. Would you bow with me as we pray? As I pray, I would just say this. If your heart has been stirred today and you need to trust Christ right where you sit, turn to Jesus. Ask him to save you. To bring new life where there is a hard and dead heart. As I pray, and if it's your prayer too, tell him about your cares and concerns and your need and ask him, to bear your burdens. Father, today, we are amazed at Jesus the Nazarene, this one who came and turned things on its head, who was able to do all miracles and exercise the authority of heaven in every place that he went, where there was faith. So Lord, today, help us with our areas of unbelief. We cast our cares and burdens and anxieties and shortcomings and insufficiencies and our inability to save ourselves. We cast that over to you. Ask you to help us. Lord, would you work where you have promised to work? Would you do what you have promised to do? Would you do what only you can do? We'll give you the praise and the glory and the honor in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.